So I think it's really important that we remember that women in community is really powerful and that women in community around their resources is also really powerful. Does talking about your money make you cringe? Are you tired of fighting about finances? Do you want to stop sabotaging your financial happiness? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to Breaking Money Silence, a podcast series aimed at helping all of us talk more openly about money. Your host, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, is a wealth psychology expert who is doing what she does best, speaking about taboo topics. International speaker, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection, Kathleen understands money and our relationship with it. Over the past decade, she has empowered thousands of people to break money silence at home and at work. Now, here is Kathleen. This podcast was brought to you by Oak Maple Finance. At Oak Maple, our fiduciary, heart-centered approach means letting go of one plan fits all advice. Our process is simple. You talk, we listen. You get financial guidance customized to your specific needs because we know that life is better when your financial plan fits you. Visit our website at oakmaple.com. Today, I am with Alyssa Wright. She's the CEO of Wright Collective. She's a social change artist, movement builder, and philanthropic advisor. And I've had an opportunity to talk to her briefly before today's podcast, and she's a lot of fun as well. She is the thinking behind her company, Wright Collective, which is a community-driven approach to accelerating social change. Alyssa has collaborated in communities such as Women Moving Millions, Resource Generation in New England International Donors, and graduated in 2016 from Cornell University, certified in change leadership. Today, I am going to talk with Alyssa about her love of philanthropy, uh, a little bit about the difference between how men and women tend to give, which we all know I love gender intelligence, so we'll dive in there, and how you can get involved in your community so you can help reach your charitable goals. Alyssa, I'm so excited to have the conversation with you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kathleen. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So you have an interesting story, I think. Well, not your typical story. So tell the listeners a little bit about how you got involved in philanthropy and why you're so passionate about it today. Sure, sure. I well, I always kind of joke that I'm so passionate about philanthropy and calling myself a philanthropist because I don't think that I'm supposed to be one. <laughs> so I sort of always make this joke because 15, 20 years ago, when I was first starting in the sector, philanthropy was the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts of the world. It was older, it was male, it was high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals. And it wasn't me. I was a 19 year old girl and living in rural Massachusetts, part of a um, a social justice oriented theater company, practicing as an artist, working in a coffee shop and fundraising for a lot of social causes in the community that I felt were really important to the, the fabric of our times, you know, right around the economic downturn when I was trying to sort of launch my career um, in the, the late 2000s. And so, yeah, I, I got involved in philanthropy sort of by accident as a fundraiser and as an activist and an artist in that community. And I just had this really interesting, I think, perspective on the work because of my own lived experience. And I think one of the ways that I 
sort of grabbed the mic in a lot of ways in some of the philanthropic circles back in Massachusetts, where I'm from, was just simply by saying that lived experience was as valuable, if not more valuable than other types of capital, financial, intellectual, whatever else it was that folks were putting on the table, because I had lived the problems that people were trying to solve. And so coming from that space and place, I just felt like it was so important to get passionate about it, to create resource flow for the communities that I cared about. And the more that I sort of started to grab the mic and claim my space, the more I realized there was value in that. And also it was really appreciated by folks who had no clue what it was like um, to have lived some of those uh, scenarios. And then as I kind of grew in philanthropy, I got more and more passionate about it because I started to see how gendered it was. And there were many women I knew who were accruing wealth or who were in inheriting wealth um, for the first time, and they didn't really have the opportunities to make decisions or they hadn't necessarily claimed their philanthropy yet to do so. And I just saw a lot of power and more women getting involved in causes, particularly ones that impacted them and their their children and their families. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how it all started and why I'm still fired up about it today. <laughs> I love that. So the lived experience, tell us a little bit about how you define that just for anybody who may need it defined a little bit more concretely. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I grew up working class poor. You know, I was the scholarship kid. I grew up in a family where we were cutting hot dogs in half and making peanut butter and jellies and stacking them in the freezer to sort of get by and 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 you know, being food insecure and so many other things, being able to pay bills when a car broke down and having to budget things and it was really difficult growing up in a lot of ways between that and a lot of mental health issues that couldn't be treated because we didn't have access to resources in our community. So lived experience for me is when you know you have an experience being someone who was growing up in a home or who personally experienced it yourself or who lived in a community where there was that most need where the folks were that vulnerable. You know, you see the day in and the day out and there's actually a term these days that I, I find a lot of value, which is being a lived experience expert, which I always kind of laugh because who's, you know, ex expertise is always interesting how different people define it. But I think it was just something that wasn't on the table. You know, I'm not saying that we don't need everyone to have the understanding and the heart capital and the intellectual capital and the knowledge and the, the financial capital, the money. And, you know, it takes all of it to be on the table. But the thing that I often saw missing were those who had actually lived the problems and the experiences and, you know, had lived in the communities as well, where people were seeking to solve and support issues. So that's sort of the definition that I have. And, you know, again, my background being a lot around um, class and gender, things that impacted me the most living at the, at the poverty line as a young woman, those are the lived experiences I speak a lot to. And then, you know, I'm also mindful of lived experiences that aren't mine, and I'm always seeking knowledge around those as well. Yeah, I think it's really important uh, to have everybody at the table and to bust the myth open, which you already have, of the idea that philanthropy is only for wealthy white guys. Yes. Uh, and so <laughs> I know that there has been a lot done in that realm since 2000, um, but you raise a really interesting issue, one that I spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about when it comes to women and money. And that's part of the reason we're doing this series. Um, but you really highlighted how gendered philanthropy could be. And I know part of what we have done in episodes before yours is talk a little bit about women and the history around philanthropy, because it's not talked about much. Um, but from your perspective, what are the differences between how men and women typically, and I know it's typical, it's not everybody, but typically approach ph philanthropy? How is it different? 
Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question, Kathleen. I think it's really important for, for, for two reasons. One is there are definitely trends and commonalities that we can point to. But, you know, as we all know, I think in most spaces, there's also the individual, right? So there's a lot of research that's been done to show some trends, but it is important to think about every woman and her giving and her relationship to money. And again, her lived experience, her intellect as is, is being an individual of her own. But I also think it's really important to see trends because we do know that there are a lot of differences between how men and women not only approach philanthropy, but also just relate to certain socioeconomic conditions and certain causes. So I, I will do a quick shout out because I think it's important for folks listening today to have some resources. The Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy is a huge resource. And they're actually the only ones in the nation that are specifically researching women's philanthropy. So a lot of the Statistics I might reference in the next couple of minutes um, are things that I think folks can go and even dive deeper into and read the, the, the really amazing anecdotal data that the Institute has on this. And but, just so you know, we will put that link in the show notes so people can oh, easily brilliant. access that. Love it. So yeah, so a couple of things that I can point to first, and I, I love this one because I have a lot of friends in their 30s and 40s who are single and they go, yep, this is true. <laughs> but single women are much more likely than similarly situated single men to give to charity. They actually give almost double what single men give to charity, particularly as they age. So I always find that really interesting. And again, that's at almost all income levels. So we're talking about the single single woman who is middle class to the single woman who is ultra high net worth. So that's really interesting, I think, to think about for sure. And I also think that, you know, women have, for those that are in a, in a household environment, however they sort of, you know, define household and family, they have a significant impact on the entire household household's giving patterns. So again, we see a lot of women within the household sort of defining the giving of the home. And often even in situations where, you know, a husband's income increases, the, the, the Lilly family school actually found the total household giving only increases by 3%. But when the wife's or the woman's income increases, the total household giving increases by more than 5%. So that's just really fascinating, I think, because we see women have a really strong philanthropic desire to give back in the community. And they'll often push to do more philanthropically than their male counterparts. Obviously, this is in, you know, in certain types of households. A couple What's of interesting? Things. Let me let me just ah, go ahead. There. Yeah, no, what I'm curious about is, and I wonder if this is it, that when you think about women and you think about wealth, often when you look at how women define wealth, they tend to define it more holistically. They tend to yep. think about it more in terms of community. And I wonder if that is what ties into these gender uh, trends that women tend to be more philanthropic at least at this stage in this research uh, project uh, than men do. Because I, I don't want us to, to say men yeah. aren't, but it's really interesting how much more philanthropic centered we tend to be. So it's just curious to me. Yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's a really good point. And that leads kind of to some other things that, you know, are we find again trends between men and women is that women do tend more often to go beyond the check. So again, we'll see men some, sometimes, you know, obviously holding board seats at organizations or offering up, you know, certain sort of skill-based volunteer roles, but women tend to be a lot more involved with their talents, their networks, their ties. They tend to do more fun, funder organizing or, um, you know, different types of organizing or volunteer efforts with organizations. So time and time again on surveys, 
when we sort of look at how men and women engage with social causes differently, women tend to really go beyond the check, even even in the scenarios where their checks are smaller. So I definitely think there's something to, to women wanting to be in community around both their giving, but also around the causes they care about. And again, I don't think it's necessarily that men don't want to be giving beyond the check. I think that it's men tend to not want to be as in community. Like, again, we see them be parts of certain groups, but not create their own groups as often as we see women do that. And I think we know that, you know, like I think you can look to any of the movements of our time and women were always the ones organizing the social capital and really rallying large groups together around particular efforts. So I find that really fascinating. While women and men both want facts, it seems that women want more interactions, more community, more sense of belonging, especially before they make or increase their giving. Well, the thing, and we're not going to be able to answer it today, but the thing that comes up for me is, you know, if you think back to primitive times, right, when men were off hunting and women were sitting around in community, survival was community, right? You, yes. In order to survive, you had to be part of the community. And in order to survive as a man, you had to be able to go out, you know, somewhat individually and hunt. Now we flash forward to today, and my question is, and I guess time will tell, is as we are doing a better job of really allowing people to certainly identify with their gender, however they say fit, but also not falling into traditional gender roles. I just wonder if like Gen Z, if some of these uh, philanthropic trends might change, or is it just wired in our DNA? You know, it's really interesting that you asked that because I'm a self-identified millennial. So I'm, a, I'm an elder millennial now. I hear when you're headed towards 40, you're an elder millennial. <laughs> Elder millennial. That's a great yeah, term onto itself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so as a as a self-identified elder millennial, I guess. Um, <laughs> I will share that I'm always interested. And that was a big reason I got involved in philanthropy too. I was, I would often find myself in my twenties, you know, by 40 years, the youngest person in the room. And I was like, oh shoot, like we need multi-generational engagement here. Where's my generation? And I think, so we've always really closely at the right collective, um, at the firm that I, I facilitate, we look really closely at millennial giving trends because they're on the crux of such a massive inheritance right now. And what we're seeing, particularly with um, young women that we're supporting or that we're in network with, they definitely, I think, are sort of some of these trends and these myths they're debunking. And one that I find is that a lot of the males in their family structures, so again, you know, cousins or brothers or even their, their partners or spouses, young men and women of ultra high net worth are actually starting to give at the same percentages. So you know how we said earlier that some of the trends to date have shown that women give significantly more when they're, you know, single women, we're starting to find that some of those trends are changing because the next generation, especially ultra high net worth, they're actually giving at a similar pace. So it will be interesting to follow those things as time goes on, especially as a lot of folks are a combination of both self-generated and inherited wealth and, you know, what they might do differently with the different pockets of money and um, the different relationships that come with it. Because you name a really good point, Kathleen, like for women, I think it's also about social capital and how do they use their networks to drive change in their communities. Right, right. Well, that is interesting. And um, I'm going to steal the term elder millennial for other <laughs> use, to, just putting you on notice. Uh, but let, let's get back to the topic at hand. So if women, at least to date, have really wanted to get together and give in community, uh, I think the term is collective philanthropy. If women gravitate in this you know, to collective philanthropy, what are the ways that our listeners can actually find out more about 
where to go to be with other women that might be interested in giving back in the way they're interested in giving back. Yeah. So the first thing I'll share is, you know, collective philanthropy, you'll see it, you'll see a lot of different terms out there. One of the ones you actually might be more familiar with, again, through maybe some faith-based networks or some even business networks in your community is giving circles. So there are a lot of giving circles that are sort of associated with different causes or different institutions in a lot of communities. But there is this real movement kind of that you know, giving circles have started to organize and there's now all these different collective philanthropy vehicles, which basically means that a ton of folks are coming together, pooling their resources, and then going through a democratic process to kind of determine where to allocate those funds in their community. So what I really love to kind of share in this space, you know, with with listeners uh, today is I think the first thing that you can do is to chat with folks in your area to just start simply asking, you know, have you ever been a part of a giving circle here locally? Have you ever been part of a collective philanthropy group? Have you ever engaged in a a pooled fund? You know, sometimes uh, community foundations or a local chamber of commerce or a group such as that might already know about those mechanisms that exist. And then uh, digitally, There's an amazing organization called Philanthropy Together, which actually was seed funded by the Gates Foundation to really kick off. And what Philanthropy Together is, is the network of giving circles throughout the United States. And they've recently started to go global. There's a database on their website called Grapevine. It's a database of all of the giving circles throughout the globe right now. They're mapping them and there's thousands and thousands of them. So I'm sure You can find one either locally where you live or around an issue that you care about, again, either locally or globally. And those are really good places, I think, to get started. You know, you can go to the website, you can type in, you know, racial justice upstate New York and find a giving circle in the community and you can reach out to the chair or the um, organizer of that group. So, you know, there's a lot of really good opportunities through, again, philanthropy together and grapevine. And then the last thing I'll just share and again, just tapping into my my millennialness is I tend to really enjoy following influencers around certain causes that I care about on social media or even in like the local newspaper, you know? So the Portland Press Herald um, up here in Maine, where I live, like sometimes I'll follow columnists to see if they mention different giving mechanisms, or I've reached out to them also to say, hey, you wrote about this topic and, you know, how important the free press is to protecting our democracy. Do you know any groups that are organizing to do some fundraising around that or to um, start to evaluate where we can move resources to, you know, support a free press? So whatever the topic is, you know, I think local influencers, local nonprofits, again, some of those other entities I mentioned are a good place to get started. That's awesome. So I am sitting there. I've gone to Philanthropy Together. I've tapped into the grapevine and I have five options, right? I pick one. I am headed to a meeting. What should I know? What should I do? How should I prepare? Like, what are the tips in order to kind of move my goal forward? No, again, such a good question, Kathleen. I think the most important thing, you know, and I think you talk a lot about this in your work is to have a clear sense as you kind of approach a community like this of how much you want to give, what are some of those questions that you want to explore, and then what do you really, what do you want to learn? You know, I think the collective philanthropy space is so interesting and important, particularly for women, because it allows us the opportunity to be vulnerable and also to get access to communities where, you know, we want to ask more questions to talk about how we can become better philanthropists and advocates on behalf of 
again, so many really relevant and timely issues that are impacting all of us, no matter um, where you are really in the world. So I think it's important to go in and there might be a difference depending on what issue you're working on, whether or not you're going to be giving, you know, $100 to a pooled fund or if you want to put $5,000 in. So I would definitely think about the amount that you want to give before you show up, just because that might change your level of engagement or it might there might be different groups suggested for you based on how much cash you're putting in. And then I think the other thing is, what are some of those questions that you really want to get answered? And you can explore those. You know, most of the people that organize giving circles, they're going to tell you up front what that looks like. And they're going to ask you, what do you hope to get out of this? So I tend to find that, you know, when you approach that first conversation with someone and they invite you to the first giving circle, just be prepared to ask really good questions, to be a great listener. And then usually after the first or second meeting, you'll start to get a good sense of what types of organizations you'll be supporting the organization, reaching out to, to potentially be the beneficiary of your pooled fund. Interesting. So we need to think about before we go in, just for that initial meeting or that initial experience, the amount we want to give so we can get ourselves into the right group based on our current giving. And then also, I love this because curiosity is a big thing, right? So what do you want to get from the yes. experience? What do you want to learn? How can you be curious about it? Because my sense is, it sounds like how you got into it, Alyssa, is like over time, you can learn more and more and more and develop, you know, if you can go anywhere from developing an expertise to just, hey, I go to this circle every once in a while and, and that's enough for me. Um, you know, as you're talking about philanthropy, of course, things are coming to my mind. I'm a human being, so I gravitate towards the things that I know. So, you know, for me, it might be climate change because I'm a skier and I've noticed it's not snowing as much or it's raining when it's not supposed to all summer. Or it might be eating disorders. I've worked in that field before. I'm very passionate about empowering women, not only to feel better about their bodies, but to feel better about their bank accounts. So we naturally gravitate towards the things that we know. But what I'm curious about is say, like, how do I get involved in something that's outside my box? Like, for instance, it's another area that I'm interested in, but it wouldn't be where I'd naturally gravitate, would be around, um, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in some capacity around business owners, right? So I'm naturally going to gravitate, and I'm going to be very vulnerable right now to, like, the white women that look like me that care about what I care about. So tell me, how do I widen that circle? How do I think outside that box? And if I'm that person, what steps do I need to take to uh, get out there and start looking for places to participate? Such an important question. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm constantly, as I'm sure many of us do, forever and always on my own anti-racism journey to kind of undo so many of the things and the spaces and places I've naturally gravitated towards and some of the things that I've, you know, I've learned that I'm now undoing. So I guess I'll start first, Kathleen, by just sharing that, um, you know, as a white white woman myself, I think that one of the, my favorite things that a colleague said to me years ago is, welcome to the great journey of unlearning. <laughs> you know, she said, I want you to throw away so many of the things that you've learned and just know that like, you know, your job now is to listen and challenge some of the things that, you know, you've traditionally thought. I remember during 2020, during the pandemic and all of the racial unrest in our country, I remember a friend saying to me, you're so involved in philanthropy and yes, money plays a role, but have you ever actually like put your body on the line or your reputation? And is that also part of being a good philanthropist? Because it's not just about cutting a check and then waving goodbye and saying good luck. It does, as you sort of mentioned earlier at the top of the call, take all of us putting all that we are into these causes that are so timely um, to the 
you know, the fabric of our future. You know, I think about my two little girls and I hope that they see their mom writing, you know, courageous and writing a, a new narrative, you know, as much as I'm trying to understand how to evolve some of the best practices that I do know are important in, in our sector to hold on to because they have been learned in and around diverse communities for so long. So I would say, I think the biggest thing is to embrace the idea of unlearning, be okay with not knowing everything, be okay with just showing up and listening and asking good questions as you start to engage in different communities. And also, you know, I think it's really important that you do do some research and take a risk. You know, you you might find a racial justice giving circle in Baltimore, Maryland, that is accepting members from all over the country and put $250 in the pool and go to the meetings and learn and bear witness and understand the stories. Maybe throw in every uh, every year or maybe every couple of years something, you know, buying a ticket to an event at, you know, somewhere that or in a community that you don't know anyone that's going to it. <laughs> you know, you're going to be, you're going to be, you know, you're going to see the name tag there and you're not going to know most of the people, but you're going to show up, you're going to listen, um, you're going to participate and just taking that risk to go outside your comfort zone. I forget, is it Eleanor Roosevelt that says, do something every day that scares you or makes you a little uncomfortable. I think that's a good practice for philanthropy, thinking about how you can do that in a cadence that works for you. I love to take risks. So like every day I live that and I drive my partner crazy in our house. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, could you stop doing that? But you know, for you, it might be once or twice a year. And I also think it's easier if you go at, you know, if you go into one of those communities for yourself that intersects with an issue you already care about. So I years ago made a stronger commitment to anti-racism work because I felt like I cared so much about gender justice and I needed to understand the nuances of that. And over the years, as I learned more and more, I realized, oh my gosh, like led me in my own work. I, My husband and I are big funders in the birth justice space. Personally, we think it's really important to support black midwives in our country. And I was like, oh my gosh, all the things I missed by not learning from black midwives around my own maternal care and around my family's care. So I think it's important to sometimes start at the intersections, take those risks, commit to unlearning, and you'll find your way. I love that. And what my call to action would be for those listening out there is to pick you know, one place where maybe it's just an automatic for you. You think, oh yeah, this is definitely what I'm interested in. People may or may not look like me, but this is kind of what I naturally gravitate towards. And then pick one that's outside your comfort zone. And I want to definitely reinforce the idea of taking it your own cadence. Nobody says you have to go and be the most committed person. In fact, it might be better to sit back and listen and learn or unlearn, uh, as Alyssa said. But I think those are two really good takeaways. Time goes so quickly on this podcast. I always say to myself, (laughs) it's going to be 20 minutes, and then I get very engaged in the conversation. So it's a little (laughs) bit longer, but I think it's worthwhile. I I do want you, Alyssa, you have so much knowledge and you've shared so much already, but if you had to leave the audience just with one tip around women of philanthropy, what would it be and why would it be that? (laughs) All right, I'm going to try to- I know, hard one. (laughs) Short and sweet, the big question at the end. I think the one thing I would say, and this is super broad in general, but I think it's important to help women see, have a holistic view of capital as they show up in philanthropy. So not everyone is always going to have just the financial resources to bring to the work, but I've seen women do incredible things because they bring 
heart capital and spiritual capital. And again, like, you know, your networks, your social capital. I don't think we should make assumptions that just because a woman is cutting the biggest check in the room, she's the most powerful philanthropist. And again, this goes back a little bit to how people saw me, you know, 19 year old running around downtown Northampton, Massachusetts, fundraising and having people sign petitions in my very old kid sneakers. I raised more money with my social networks than I ever could cut a check um, than people who were triple my age at that time. So I think it's really important that we remember that women in community is really powerful and that women in community around their resources is also really powerful. And the other piece of that too is financial resources, like they are really powerful. So I don't want to discredit that either. And so women in community around the financial piece as well. I mean, I think it's so important to think about all of your financial capital as well, not just your philanthropic giving, but all the ways that you can align your resources um, to do good and to find those communities that are ready for you to align your values and 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 help solve some of the biggest problems of our times and, and come up with good solutions as, as we are in community. So yeah, short and sweet. There we go. <laughs> Holistic view of capital. I love it. So yes. everybody needs to think about what are the different aspects of giving that they can participate in now in the future. And you've really expanded our knowledge of collective philanthropy and really thinking about giving in different ways, which I appreciate. I'm so glad you accidentally fell into this years ago because your lived experience and your uh, expertise now is, is really uh, beneficial to the audience and I've learned a lot as well. So Alyssa, I know that people are gonna want to find out more about you and your firm and what you're up to. Let them know the easiest way to do that. Yeah, so you can head to write, W-R-I-G-H-T, collective.co.co. As everyone always says to me, did you forget the M? No, it's writecollective.co. <laughs> so you can head on over to our website. You can learn about our services. We support social change by two ways. We help mobilize resources for communities. So we do a lot of fundraising support for nonprofits and social enterprises. And then we also do philanthropic advising work with families, companies, and individuals. So we're working sort of to build the bridge between those who have resources and those who need resources. And I'm happy, yeah, you can book a free consult through the website. And I'm happy also too to connect on LinkedIn. You can find me, Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A, uh, right on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Well, I will put all your contact information in the show notes. And it has been a joy to break money silence with you, Alyssa. You too, Kathleen. Thanks so much. This podcast was brought to you by Oak Maple Finance. At Oak Maple, our fiduciary, heart-centered approach means letting go of one plan fits all advice. Our process is simple. You talk, we listen. You get financial guidance customized to your specific needs because we know that life is better when your financial plan fits you. Visit our website at oakmaple.com. Thank you for listening to Breaking Money Silence, hosted by Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, a wealth psychology expert, author, and founder of KBK Wealth Connection. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Also, share this episode with your friends and family. It is a great way to get the conversation started. For more money talk tips and information, or to hire Kathleen to speak at your next event, go to www.breakingmoneysilence.com.